All right, thank you for joining us on the Puget Systems Podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Bach, and today I'm joined by Gary Adcock. And Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Matt. It's a nice snowy day in Chicago. So oh, terrific. I'm having fun. Great. Uh, so just for our listeners, uh, can you just give us a very brief, like, who are you, what do you do, and where have you come from? Um, I'm a consultant to the industry, and I do a lot of technological um soothsaying, for lack of a better phrase, for, for some companies. Um, I've been associated with a lot of new technologies. I'm a Thunderbolt evangelist, uh, but I'm also you know, a producer, a director, a cinematographer, and somebody who really enjoys the technology and the knowledge around being a filmmaker and, and content creator. Um, I live in Chicago. I started as a still photographer. That was a lifetime or two ago. And, and I do a lot of things. I, I mean, we're coming up on NAB very soon. And this is going to be the 22nd year I've been speaking at NAB. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's kind of strange when you think you've been doing this for that long. And it actually takes that much time. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm only on like my fourth or fifth. Imagining 22 years of NAB is. And speaking at every one of them. I've and actually speaking, been to more. Yeah. There's 22 speaking this year. So. Wow. Amazing. Uh, so one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because one of the topics we've wanted to talk about is kind of general trends in post-production, but not really looking to the past, but the future. Like where are things going? Um, and, you know, we're really big on technology, both you and I. So it's kind of like what technology is kind of pushing some of these trends and what technology are we kind of lacking? Like what do people want to do, but we can't really quite do it yet uh, just because the technology is not there? Well, I mean, you look at so many things around us, Matt, that, are, that we get involved with as content creators. And you can start with the de-aging process that they've used for, um, you know, in Gemini Man with Will Smith or in The Irishman where they, you know, de-aged both De Niro and Pesci. And, and it's an interesting lifetime we live now because that's been done in, in music videos and concert films for a long time, music videos in particular, commercials, that's been going on for maybe 10 years to clean up actresses, to solve things. Oh, they don't, the, you know, the guy's too old for what they want. So they're going to mm -hmm. de-age him a little bit. And it's amazing how much of that technology has been in the commercial space for a very long time. And, and now you're getting it mainstream and, and you're seeing it, you know, look what they did in Gemini Man with Will Smith, where they completely rebuild his younger self because there was such a large content of, of media available on him. They had such a wide variety of, of photographs to work from. They could actually de-age him a very, very, very complex way in a very minimal amount of time. And that was the surprising thing to me. And then, of course, they you know had to do 4K, 120 frame content in 3D. You know, again, pushing the realm of technology to an extreme that you don't even mm -hmm. think about because it's not just the re-rendering and the de-aging of Will Smith and dropping in the third character. They're actually doing 3D at a nearly unheard of rate in 4K and producing that content in real time at, at ultra high you know frame rates, 60 frames, yeah. 120 frames a second. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the bigger, I mean, man, we just jumped into this because I think we're both really excited about a lot of these topics. <laughs> uh, but yeah, a lot of this like de-aging stuff, for, for people that aren't really aware of how, kind of how it's, what's going on in the background, um, it used to be fairly manual process or a lot of makeup, a lot of that kind of stuff. Now it's it's all artificial intelligence and, and it's very easy artificial intelligence, especially with these actors like Will Smith. I mean, there is how many different pictures of him from all of these movies. Each frame, you know, is a picture that they can use as reference. So they just feed these computers like all of these old movies from him. And it they just tell we want him to look like he did at that time. And it's 
I mean, not fully automatic. It's not perfect, but I mean, you look at it and it's really good. Like I, I took me a while to even realize that like the Irishman was, yeah, they were doing de-aging in that way because it's so good. We've passed the point of uncanny Valley. I feel like. Well, I, I, I agree too. And with Will Smith, you have, you know, the visual effects movies he's worked on for the last 20 years or so has given them a very good archive of the reference frames needed for that kind of work. So they actually, by understanding how his face ages, they can then de-age it the same way. And that's that's one of the exceptional parts about it and why the Will Smith one was was really incredible. There was a couple of times in Irishman that drove me crazy. I mean, one of them was when, you know, young De Niro is kicking the guy in the street and he's stomping up and down on him. But you realize from the way the body's moving that it's 70 year old De Niro doing that. And that's just not a mm. good thing. You know, it was just there was a disconnect on some of those things where they where they're de-aging the character in real time. Um, and one of those is the body motion. Yeah, um, that's that's one of the flaws in it. Yeah, but that also too, like all this AI stuff. Um, I mean, we have this problem with like deep fakes. I mean, I don't want to say it's a problem yet, but where you just take someone as long as they look you know, along the same lines as the person, you can just overlay their face. It's, it's using the, a lot of the same concepts as de aging. Oh, maybe not exactly the same, but you know, same like artificial intelligence and all that. And it's just replacing the person. I, I think it was it was one of the Need for Speed movies. Or no, that's not right. One of those movies, the car movies, where they replaced one of the actors completely um, because he had passed away. And like the fact that you can do that. So I'm a little bit surprised in that movie that they didn't just get a person who just looked like, you know, roughly what he did when he was that age and just did a you know, replacement, yeah. a whole different actor. Well, and, and, and think about it from the other side, too. There's just so much of that going on. And, and I was thinking mm -hmm. of a reference and I forgot what it was, but, but we've gotten to a point where, you know, you can do a morph cut in Premiere and do a pretty extreme variance of two positions and it'll cut it together. And that's built into a piece of software mm -hmm. that most people use. And that same technology is available in Scratch and somewhat in, in Resolve. And then you look at Resolve's, you know, no boring cuts. Um, they're putting a lot yeah. of kind of information in there that's just researching. I mean, this is what we used to do with QC when you sent to, you know, the station to have your product done. They'd, they'd run a QC test on it. Now we've got an intelligent way to do it. And the computers are, have so much power that we're actually using this machine learning to grow into a much, much better QC policy. And, 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 and now they've taken that same technology and put it in, you know, how am I, how I'm going to do an edit or how much sound I've got or where the edits need to be. And now we've expressed that into de-aging characters and showing a different face, so to speak. Yeah, so th this wasn't actually something I had even written down as a note as a possible topic, but uh, that makes me think um, a, a future trend that I've heard some people express concerns about recently at shows like NAB is all of this automation and artificial intelligence. Is that going to basically take people's jobs? I mean, I know that's been discussed a lot, but you know, we're already talking about being able to fix actors and um, or like de-age them. And you mentioned the the boring cut detector and and resolve. Uh, I've seen things where it will automatically look at the original, um, like the transcript of, you know, what it was going to be going on. It'll automatically select the best cuts or uh, and try to create your movie from scratch, which I mean, it's not there yet. But, you know, that's a that's a trend. Do you see a lot of this art artificial intelligence stopping becoming a tool for people to use and rather becoming either a crutch or just replacing the things that right now are being done by individual skilled you know, people? Well, let's take a specific area. Let's say news. And how many things come in in news where you can you can key it, you can mark it, 
and you send it back to the station and they can pick that up and do an assembly in real time. That's a place where automation is, is to our advantage, not because it takes people out of the loop, but because it shortens the time to broadcast. It's no longer the, you know, it's not a live stream, but it's a truly an edited product that can be done in real time as it comes in. And you get those kind of applications are interesting, particularly for, you know, sports, um, live events, those kinds of things. But yes, it's going to take people's jobs and it's going to take a lot of them. And I don't think a lot of um, post-production people think about how that affects their future. I mean, we're getting in situations where there's less and less people on at television stations and, and that and people are more and more becoming independent content creators. How are those independent content creators going to be able to keep up with the speed and agility of the automated systems for larger facilities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, my, my view on this, what I've always told people is, I really hope that all this AI and automation stuff it's not going to get people out of the industry. It's not going to get them to be fired and then now they're just homeless. But my hope is that what it does is it enables people to be able to spend time on the things that are like actually creative tasks, being able to actually flex your creative muscles and making a product, you know, a video better and more emotional rather than having to spend all this time on, okay, let's watch the 30 takes we did and pick the best one. You know, it can narrow it down to the best three. Um, so my, my personal viewpoint is that it's going to enable people much more than it is going to create problems. Now, I mean, just like when we went from analog film to digital, yes, that is going to take some jobs away. But I mean, look at the film industry today versus where it was when we were you know, shooting everything on film. It's a much bigger industry. Well, I mean, you take that as a, that's a perfect you know, reference to if you look at 10 years ago, we were still working on an analog world. Everything was still recorded and delivered on tape in 2010. You know, think about that and remember that for a second, because it wasn't until March of 2011 when the Fukushima earthquake happened and the SAG strike that that those two things together kind of forced television and recording to change. There was no longer tape. Most of the tape facilities were, were, were knocked out. So you couldn't have any ability to deliver tape. And, and we very quickly became a completely general uh, digital generation. In, in a span of less than 10 years, we've gone fully digital whole hog. And a lot of people don't think about that kind of changes and how that's relevant. Um, you know, it happened right at the end of, you know, forcing everybody to go digital and people were still whining about going to HD 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about 4K and the, the workflows are, are possible in 8K. But right now, I think it's I think it's important for people to focus on what we can do now and how we can make that better. You know, we're still trying to deliver 4K over over the air. We're still trying to understand HDR. Let's start right there and make those our focus for the next year or so. While guys like you and I can work on 8K and workflows and Thunderbolt 4 and some of the other things that are coming. Yeah. So let, let's move over to some of that stuff, because, I mean, so far we've talked about things that are it's really the technology is pushing the, the trends in the industry. And, and like you mentioned, how we're, we're trying to figure out how we can do 4K in like television. 4K is a little bit better when it comes to like streaming services, but a lot of streaming services now are wanting to do 6K and 8K. And I think that that's an area where people are wanting something that we can't do. The technology is holding us back. Give us our, your thoughts on you know 4K, 8K, beyond and all of that. Well, you know, we're, we're right around the Super Bowl time um, and it comes around, you know, beginning of February every year. There's still not open 4K broadcasting of 
the Super Bowl, one of the largest sporting events in the world. You get more with um, uh, World Cup and and the soccer football, you know, traditional non-American football. But it's mm. interesting how many people, you know, don't think about that when they go, oh, I got a 4K TV and I got a 4K TV. And it's like, you look at it, it's like, well, you can do it through Amazon's app. You can do it through the Fox Sports app, but not in HDR and Apple TV. And there's this whole list of stuff you can do to kind of get a 4K Super Bowl. And, and we're not even to that point yet because most of our content that comes that high quality comes streaming. It's not real time. And that's going to be one of the big jumps in the next few years I see for people is the real time broadcast and playback of 4K HDR content. Um, it's really going to make a difference in sports. I think it's going to change the way a lot of people see sports um, because that's a deliverable that everybody sees now and wants even more. And, yeah. and, and the push to 8K, you know, I know that I know the manufacturer, the monitor manufacturers all want 8K displays. Oh, here, get your new 8K display, get your new 8K display. But I really think the focus for a lot of users sh should be HDR. HDR is so immersive in its environment and, and, you know, the displays look better in a 2K HDR scene looks better than a 4K, you know, 709 scene in most instances because of the dynamic range that you're looking at. It's much more pleasing to the eye. It's much more um, evocative to your soul because of how the contrast and color works. Mm. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of HDR. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my, my own take is I feel like 4K... Even 6K, there are major arguments for delivering in that. My own personal is that once you get to like 8K and all that kind of stuff, that's more you're shooting in 8K to have a safety net. You you did you know something was slightly off in the framing or something, you can fix it. Versus if you shoot in 4K and you're going to deliver in 4K, you've got to get it right in camera. Which I mean, you should you should always get it right in camera. But you know, it's just like why you shoot a little bit before you. Uh, a before a scene and a little bit after you give yourself a little bit of extra time to work with same thing with 8k and that that's my own take when it comes to like resolution and pre-roll post-roll mm -hmm. and and room tone you know basics in our industry the other application for 8k that people don't think about is, is you know you you it makes me think of phil holland who does these beautiful you know scenic panoramas for Apple TV. And he shoots them all multi-camera 8K because he wants the ability to have that look. And there's something different about that. And when you're doing these moving panoramas or tracking shots or backgrounds or plates or any of the things that you need for stock, uh, you know, that gives you just so much more power having that much that large an image. So there's there are a lot of applications for it, military, scientific. Um, there's a lot of places where I think 8K really um, is an excellent way to go. But for mainstream users and viewers, I still think that, you know, 4K is where we're going to be, where we're at, and where we're going to be for at least two or three more years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my biggest thing with even 4K so far is not actually the resolution. I mean, we can shoot in 4K, we can edit in 4K, and it's not too bad. We can deliver in 4K in some streaming services. Uh, to me, I, I feel like one of the biggest things holding us back, uh, broadcast is a whole separate topic, but in terms of like streaming and stuff, is actually more the codecs. It's the compression that we have to have in order to deliver these things. I mean, there are times that I've tried to watch a video on YouTube at 4K, and it looks worse than some other videos on 1080p. And it's just because of all the compression that's having to go on. Um, so one of the things I think that's kind of holding back some of the higher resolution things, uh, again, on more the streaming side, is actually that we need to get better uh, codecs. And I know HEVC is a big one that there's been a lot of push towards. 
but even that, it feels like there's just it's a little bit too much. You get too much artifacts sometimes. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, you know, we all battle that. And a lot of that's Internet connection. I, I mean, I have <laughs> a, a very high I have a gigabit asynchronous connection that works eh, occasionally in my office. Um, when it works, it works great. When it doesn't, it's I mean, I'm stuck with 10 megabits and I forgot how slow that is. Um, but it, but it's ridiculous. And I think a lot of it has to do with compression. And, and, and it also has to do with, I mean, look at the changes in compression, Justin, in the last decade or so. I mean, look what we used to have to deal with with DV or HDV. Look at long gop compression where we get multi, multiple, you know, configured frames designed by the software that weren't necessarily had to do anything with the video on either end. Um, and, and, you know, the early days of Sony HD where they were taking a, about a standard def image and enlarging it into HD via technology they were using in their decks. So it's just like, yeah, okay. You know, it's, it's, it, compression's one of those things that the better it gets, the better our lives all become. And, and one of the other things that comes with that is 5G. Mm-hmm. I think when we start getting to high-speed wireless, you know, there's nothing like getting 20 or 30 megabits to your phone mm-hmm. um, when you're traveling. Because Chicago is a test site for 5G. And it's been fun to play with, you know, ultra, ultra-high bandwidth on devices that you never expected to get, but get it on. But, but that, again, it's all about the compression. It's about the technology that takes us to the next level. I mean, how many of us love working in HEVC, you know, H.265, mm-hmm. but... Trying to get it to play on a Mac is impossible. I'm trying to get it to play on anything. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I, I, I mean, it, and it's like people forget that these. You know, and I, I work in Windows for for a lot of things, and one of the reasons is one of my cameras shoots really great H.265 codec, and I love it. But my Mac hates it, so it's like I've got to work in Windows because it it gives me the quality and power that I need. And that's one of the things that comes out of all of this is taking whatever technology is available and making it work for you. Mm-hmm. It's not about one or the other. It's about taking the best for you and, and what you do. And, and people forget about that. Well, and I think that applies to really everything. I mean, obviously, us as a workstation manufacturer, we deal that, with that a lot when it comes to like Mac or Windows. It's, no, it's not really an or. Like tons of our customers use both. And it's because which one is doing what. They, there's a lot of people in like animation. They go Windows every time because you can get tons of GPUs. You know, they're doing all this crazy stuff. That's just, you can't really do it on a Mac just because of the way that they're designed. They're designed to do very specific things, and that's just outside of it. Um, versus someone who's doing, like, you're just, just straight editing. You know, if they're working with ProRes footage or whatever, yeah, you can go either way. It's it's fine. It's whichever one you're most comfortable with. Well, and the hilarious part is, is that I do go, I, I, I do go both ways because I run, and I run all my After Effects on Windows. I never open After Effects on a Mac, ever, because hmm. it's horrible. I just hate it. But it's one of those things that I bounce back and forth all the time because I work in a, in a, in a network situation with multiple, multiple computers in my office, and they're all, you know, connected on a network and to high-speed storage so I can simultaneously work on three or four computers is not uncommon. Um, people laugh, but, you know, picture my desk is on the top of my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's part of where all this technology is, is, is if you're willing to accept the technology as it is and use the best tool for the job, you'll always turn out a better product. You know, and you can be biased all you want, but but as long as that product works for you, that's all that counts as a content creator because we're moving to a point in time where guys like us are going to leave everybody else behind because we're willing to try adhere beta, you know, beat ourselves to death with <laughs> cables and wires and plugs and 
configurations and everything else just to be able to do a little bit more. Yeah. And, and you know, I think a big part of that is it's more the willingness than the actually doing it, I, I feel like sometimes. Because, um, like, I have the time to play around with this stuff. I mean, this that's my job is to play around with this stuff. But, you know, someone who's out there and they are making their livelihood shooting commercials, you know, over and over day in and day out, like, they oftentimes don't have the time to figure out all that stuff. So I think more than the time, it's the willingness and, like, are they paying attention to the industry are, are they you know listening to whatever you know our podcast or you know the sessions you give at nab um are are they interested in it enough to keep an open mind so that when there is one of those big breakthroughs that they are willing to nimbly shift over to doing whatever this new thing is well and i think that's the case for anything you know it doesn't matter whether it's uh, you know a new cooking technique a, a new way to to um grow something, you know, use of hydroponics and things like that. So there's a lot of different things in our world that change on a regular basis that we don't think about that drive us, you know, how many people have electric cars now? And those were, you know, very rare just 10 years ago. And you don't think about those kinds of things, but it's the few that drive the future that bring everybody else along with them. And, and I'm one of those people who's always thought that that I want to see what's next. I want to I want to explore, you know. I we don't have the kind of exploration we used to, so I explore in my own way and that's the knowledge of of, of gaining knowledge of how things work, how they break and how to fix them and sharing it with other people. And, and you and I are lucky in that way. I mean, you do it in hardware. I do a lot in software and, and just the tech itself. But but we have the advantage of sharing what we're able to do with others. And I don't think people understand that sometimes. Looking forward to like, I mean, we've talked about like Mac and PC and, uh, you know, the tools for the job. One of the tools that has been talked about a lot recently is moving to like cloud services. Um, I mean, that's a big, obviously it's going to be, I don't want to say it's a concern for us because us as a company, we've always been looking 10, 20 years out. So we want to be changing ourselves as the technology has changed rather than being left behind. So cloud is not really something scary to us. To us, it's a, you know, a future. It's something that eventually I think more people are going to be working off of the cloud. But I personally don't feel like it's there yet at, at all. There, there are certain things like um, really high-end like 3D rendering where, yeah, you dump it onto the cloud because you've got your project, it's all set up, you click go, and it comes back 24 hours later. Uh, but things like actually editing, um, I feel like it's still quite a ways off. Do you have any thoughts about that? I'm, I'm, I'm with you totally on that. And, and mainly it's because we on the receiving end don't have the bandwidth to maintain this. I mean, most people don't keep a gigabit line, which is, you know, the minimum of what you do for Ethernet in your house is gigabit Ethernet. You know, it's not even 10 gig, it's gigabit Ethernet is what everybody has. And if you can't edit across that, you can't edit it, you know, in the cloud. And, and I know there's a lot of technologies on it. I do, however, like some of the things that we're doing to enable sharing. I mean, Whipster and, and Frame.io and, and some of those technologies are really changing the way people work. And those interconnected sharing spaces, I find very, very effective to work in. Now, they're not cloud-based, but they're actually allowing people remotely to log in and do that. And I think that's going to help 
invigorate the market to be able to do that. But I'm like you. I don't I don't necessarily think cloud-based editing is ever going to be the the end all be all. I think there'll be a lot of it in the future. You know, again, we get back to breaking news, sports, things that that, you know, are instantaneous and then lost forever. Yeah, a lot of that's going to be done in low resolution like that. Um, you know, Avid's forever, you know, you played real time on an Avid or Final Cut or anything in the early days. And it was always 8-bit. Nobody realized that. They didn't think about it. They threw away all the extra bits of your file because it had to play back in real time. And and you run into the same issue when you're working on online or, or in the cloud. You have to give up something to be able yeah. to do that. And that's the part people don't think about. It's not that it's not here. It's just that it's just you have to do it in limited setups. I mean, one of the interesting applications of that is NDI, the the network display infrastructure that that's by NewTek. We founded by NewTek, but is now this big, you know, thing in broadcast facilities where they're totally interconnected internally in these facilities. But that's a a cloud space in a sealed environment that's a little bit different. You know, it's kind of like you're, you're. It's like you know, you have the cloud in a in in a big building, and you get clouds like you know, it's the shuttle assembly building at NASA that has its own weather. It's that kind of thing where you control it that closely. And then it works perfectly. But if we start talking about you and the West Coast and me in Chicago working in real time on a project, nah, not going to happen for at least three or four more years, unless you're on a corporate infrastructure. If you're on a corporate infrastructure, I see more and more of that happening faster. Yeah. I mean, just to set a little bit of context, at uh, Adobe Max, uh, I went to a session. I Oh, I believe it was Amazon, actually. They, they gave a session on cloud computing, and they're doing some really, really cool stuff. They, they've got easy ways that you can just like create an account and set up a, basically a cloud workstation where it's got you know, just a normal desktop. I know there's a couple of other companies that do this as well. And they spent this whole like hour-long presentation talking about how great it is, how easy it is, how all their pricing structure is, is set up, and how you can flex. Like, hey, you got another employee? Whatever. You just set up another instance. You need more power or whatever. You just add more power. And then near the end, they inserted this one little bit uh, that was kind of the gotcha. And they they just said, like, now, of course, you're not going to be editing even HD content, you know, with this. But, you know, and then they just moved on. So, but so like they mentioned, just like it's not even HD you can really do on it. And that right there, like that immediately turned off pretty much everyone in the audience because who's editing in screeching tires? Yeah. yeah screeching tires, crushing metal sound right there in your head when you so, hear that not even yeah. hd <laughs> so I, I think there's two things mostly that's holding back cloud one is that the infrastructure that cloud works off of the actual raw hardware itself is not the right hardware for like these actually applications that people are using every day call it premiere resolve anything like that the infrastructure that the cloud is based on is based on you know high number of like cpu cores but each one is relatively slow and that's not what editing software today is built for. And I don't know if it ever will be. Um, so I think that's one of the main things that's going to hold back the cloud is just the fact that the hardware is not right for it. Um, that could be fixed, not easily and not cost effectively, though, I think. Um, the other... Okay. Well, not in not in the yeah. near future, no. Yeah, I agree, totally. Uh, the other yeah. thing that I think holds back is that uh, when you're working with like video, it's all about doing the processing wherever the data is. Um, so even if right. the hardware was right on the cloud and it could run Premiere amazingly, you've still got to get the data to it. You're either streaming it from wherever your location is, which means you're going over the internet, and at least in the US, internet infrastructure is terrible, um, or 
you have to send all of your data to wherever the cloud service is. And you can do that with Amazon. Um, there was a few of the others, I can't remember who they are, but you can do it with them too. You basically send them a drive. But at that point, well, you've either got to wait for an upload to finish, or you've got to wait for the drive to make it through the mail and then them upload into their servers. And in today's market where everything is about being quick, that just doesn't seem like it makes sense. Well, and, and one of the other ones that gets to me is, let's, let's talk dual system sound. You're going to sync your sound and video files in the cloud, and they're going to stay in sync. Somehow I don't see that. I mean, because audio transfer is always faster than video. And if yeah. you're two, two separate sources and they're not connected, currently being married, and you're trying to stream them to be able to sync them in real time, how do you do that? Well, and how do you manage just like the fact that, I mean, if you are actually streaming uh, to a virtual machine on a server somewhere, that stream to you, that video stream is highly compressed. So even the video you're working at is already going through compression and you're trying to work on it. Like, can you imagine trying to do like color, color grading off of, you know, that? Like you have no idea if it's accurate at all. So I, I think there is definitely a lot of things holding back cloud. My guess is we're gonna start really seeing a significant number of people in maybe 10 years. Uh, I think it's going to be less than that. I think it's going to be closer to five. Well, because what's going to happen is, is that <clears throat> it's going to get to the point where people in smaller groups want to do it. Schools, hmm. you know, facilities are want to be able to do this. And they're going to, and they already work on shared environments. It is, but they're working over 10 gig Ethernet or fiber. I, I mean, this is, this is a shared environment right now. And a lot of that still needs to be fleshed out. Um, it, but one of the bigger things is always going to be the upload and download connection. And I think that's going to take until we get 5G, which is really going to you know, enable the speed back and forth that we'll be able to do that. Um, there's a company called Quinn.io uh, that, that run by a guy by the name of Gunlick Groen out of uh, uh, Sweden, I think, Norway. Norway. Um, and he, he's doing this, being able to upload real-time proxies of the edit content in, you know, f on set. So it's not, he's got a back plugged into the camera and it's uploading over 5G in Europe. And they're literally getting a maybe 10 second delay to the live edit. Hmm. And this is kind of interesting. It's the technology that a lot of people don't look at because it's always one of those things that's stuck off in the corner. But it's, it's fascinating that there are people outside the United States really pushing the boundaries on what can be done on what we're talking about, which is being able to preview, cut and edit stuff in real time as it's happening. And, and that's one of the few places to do it. Now, granted, it's a low-res proxy. It's, you know, 720. I mean, most of it's living to 720-2398 or 720-25 because he's in Europe. So we're working with fairly low bandwidth. Uh, I mean, you know, most people don't realize how low a bandwidth that is. But you can do that um, and stream it in real time. And I think it's like over three megabits or something, four and five megabits. So it's a fairly low bandwidth signal. Actually, the very first um, dual streaming HD demo I did on a Firewire drive was 720.24 uncompressed 8-bit because it was only 35 megabytes a second. Hmm. And I could actually handle that on original first-generation Firewire drive. And, and you know, look at the technology now where we're talking about, you know, I know I carry an SSD with me that'll do three gigs a second over Thunderbolt. Yeah. <laughs> the, te the technology's changed a lot in 10 or 12 years. <laughs> well, and, and letting yourself upload or stream those lower res proxies, I mean, what it lets you do is it lets someone offsite go ahead and start on like the rough cuts. Like you don't have to worry about color grading at that point. You're not going to be adding VFX or anything. You're just trying to figure out what was the best shot, how you know get things rough. 
And being able to do that, like that seems amazing. You can keep your editor in house, you know, wherever they are, you go on set and shoot and they can have those done. I mean, you can get your dailies done based off of those and it just frees up a lot. Well, yeah. And, 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 but you know, and you think about that in the applications, this is the start of that. This is the, this is, what people want is to be able to collaborate and have, you know, the camera being able to deliver things in real time. And, and, you know, you think about how many live productions are being done for broadcast television nowadays, you know, it's, you know, who knows what the next one will be. I think it's the uh, Mulan or, or little mermaid or something. You know, little mermaid was the last one where you do a live production and, and then marry the content. And it's kind of interesting in that aspect that, that people don't think about how we can now start working in real time to, to kind of cut those things. But think about it also from the side of visual effects houses and that you can get low res proxies for visual effects stops and start working right away. Um, just for framing and contrast and everything else. And I think the con- content and everything else. And, and while you and I are both, you know, against it, here we are talking about all the ways that we can do it now hmm. that shows how the technology is going to change. We just, you and I are just of the opinion that, you know, full-blown real-time editing in the cloud for 4K content is still a fair distance away. But let's be honest, my phone does 4K now. And I can yeah. upload 4K in real time from my phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In and a lot of ways, it, it's just like our discussion earlier about AI, where it's it's never going to take over the whole process, but it might be more and more over time, and it's just got to get started. And it's already started, and it's just kind of where is it going to go in the future? I mean, we're seeing that you know with so many different things. Uh, like you mentioned, like onset VFX. Like I think it was Jungle Book, uh, where they were doing real time. You're replacing of blue screens and tracking and you know, having the animals walking around that you could actually see it on the camera as they were shooting. Now, it wasn't high quality, but it was enough that they could you know, make sure they got the framing right. And like the actors actually had some sort of, you know, they could see something. Oh, that's that, that technology has been out there. It's com- by a company called NCAM, letter N-C-A-M. And they've been doing that proxy stuff for a long time. They were actually one of the first ones to start uh, doing technology around that in sports. But, I mean, we're already doing some of that. Goal line, you know, f- marker lines in, f- in football, you know, arcs and baseball and how they do it and all the th- graphics they put up there, they show that in real time. It's fascinating. But that's all the technology taking it and taking real time data and applying it to it. Yeah. I mean, in those cases, I think the main thing that's different now is the accessibility. I mean, we're hearing a lot of customers who want us to do more and more systems for like Unreal Engine. It's because they're using it for not even just previs anymore. I don't even know what you call it, but like, yeah, in camera stuff. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of like news, even people that are using Unreal for their real time graphics. And they're starting to use that more for VFX. There's whole movies done in a game engine. Well, yeah, and because it's got the power to do it. And if you throw enough GPUs at it, you can do a fairly realistic render in real time. And, and you know, there's a situation where the hardware is always going to make the software work better. And, mm-hmm. and that's part of this, too. It's again, it's it gets back to it's a marriage of the technologies. It's not just one or the other. You have to keep looking at both and, and seeing where the software is pushing the hardware and the hardware is is is, you know, waiting for something to come to it and and. People don't see that in the aspect. They just want it all to be one thing. And they don't realize that, that you know, technology is a river in our life and it kind of ebbs and flows where it can get through. And, and sometimes there's a lot of resistance with technology. Sometimes mm-hmm. it flows very simply. You know, you look at Thunderbolt on Windows. That's a perfect example of a technology that was, was fully fleshed out before 
any Windows manufacturer would take it. Now they've got it and they love it. And, you know, it's like, oh, we, we love it so much. We're going to call it USB 4. <laughs> And, and, and universally put it across the board using the same kind of technology and all of that. But you, you've got, you know, you've got that. You've got the next generation of Thunderbolt, which is even faster coming. You've got DisplayPort 2. And they all use that same connector because that connector is the power, has the power. And, and, you know, we start talking about pushing four or six 8K displays over the second generation of DisplayPort or the sec 2.0 version of DisplayPort. It's actually the seventh or eighth generation of it. But that's the kind of technology that's come both because the, the physical hardware allowed it to do us, the technology around us for the displays and 8K and stuff is driving it. And there's enough of a marriage between the two of them to make it viable in the industry. That's mm -hmm. that's the state of what we're doing. I mean, did you think that 10 years ago when the first iPhone came out, you'd be shooting 4K with it a year, 10 years later? You know, no, I mean, when, who thought of like using even using the camera for anything real back then? <laughs> no. Think about that for a second. The camera that you didn't think used to be everything literally wiped out pocket cameras and a lot mm -hmm. of DSL, you know, a lot of, of, of still cameras. Totally gone now because of the quality and power of cell phones. Look at, I mean, you look at what's new with the Google Pixel and Apple's phone and how they're working in low light. Think about that for a second, that they're actually working so far that they're going into, you know, 8, 10, 15,000 ISO on these devices, much like the, you know, ultra sensitive high-end cameras that are used for that. And we carry that stuff around in our pocket and people take it for granted. They don't realize the technology that they have in their pocket. Well, and the people who do realize they're using it. Like, I, I don't even know how many people, like, I, I think it's mostly coming into play in, like, uh, people who primarily produce content for, like, YouTube or streaming services. But a lot of content is being shot on people's phones uh, or GoPros or, because, I mean, a phone is so good these days and it's so small and, you know, it's got a great battery, it's got a great screen, and it can get into places where, it's really hard to get like a really, you know, a nice camera. And so you can use it in things like in car shots or tight uh, interview spaces. Like but take it another take another aspect of that. Look at how phones have changed our how we view um, racism you know, accosting people, violence or towards people, how it's changed the way we look at, at, you know, news in a live environment, how it's changed social environments from harassment and everything else. And, and now that we have the ability to prove that things are wrong, there's a whole lot of those, you know, criminal cases and, and assault cases and, and things like that are being proven by the video that's captured around us, whether it's a security camera or it's some person holding up their phone and taking a picture. You know, it's changed a lot of things in a very short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I, we didn't want this thing, to, we could talk for hours, so I didn't want to take too long. But one, <laughs> one of the things that I did want to uh, talk about before we ran out of time is uh, it, it feels to me like technology, one of the biggest things it is doing, it is almost bringing post-production or maybe not post-production as an entirety, but like video editing almost to the masses, like I mean, we're spinning up our own podcast here. I mean, this isn't video primarily, but, you know, there's people creating YouTube channels. One of the people I follow on Twitter is an 11-year-old who is making content for himself and that's got, like, some VFX stuff. And, like, it's, it's great and it's awesome. And it's cool to see how technology is kind of enabling almost anybody who has any interest to be able to create content that people can see. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, no, the only way you could create video content is to have a video camera and now 
like I don't even want to know how many cell phones are in my house, like old models that I just didn't recycle <laughs> that could be perfectly fine for a kid or anyone to create decent content. So how is that like affecting, I, I guess, the industry as a whole? Like, I, obviously, it's not going to affect like Hollywood very much, but, you know, maybe, you know, freelancers, even up to like small production houses where everyone could be a creator. Well, everyone is a creator. And, and that's part of the point here. I mean, I, I, I think about it because, uh, I mean, when I grew up, I grew up in Chicago and there wasn't a film, you know, I didn't know about the film industry here and I was doing a lot of stuff. And I came into motion through, you know, broadcast television. A guy moved in across the hall that, that started was a TV guy. You know, he had his, his $80,000 beta cam. And we started working together because he needed a hand and I was at a day off. So it became very convenient. But now with the internet and content creation and all the tools that are available, I think we're going to see a much wider range of artistic talent. And I think we're going to see a lot more people that we, you know, that we might not have ever seen as, as content creators. I mean, you look at some of the people that are producing really, really good content and, and you know, let's take Parasite, you know, a movie from South Korea cut in Final Cut 7 on anti-technology and, and it's got a shot at being best picture this year if people can get past the two inches of subtitles in it. I mean, that shows the 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 way the technology has become so immersed that a movie from a foreign country can actually be considered for best picture in in the US for the first time. And that's what this means, is that the content is going to become so much better, so much more creative, so much more egalitarians to allow everyone to get there. I think it's, I, I think that's what this is all about. I mean, I think it's great. I, I get a chance to talk to people all the time who are, you know, young content creators or they're doing stuff for social media um, or they're doing other kind of things and, and they're excited by what they do, but they don't know how to do it. And, and the interesting part about all of this to me is, is that all of these people, if they're willing to seek out the knowledge, it's there. But just don't rely on what you, you know, hear on the internet and what you see on YouTube and everything else. Go out and try it. Go out and make sure you know what you're doing. It's not just what you read. It's the actual experience. Go work on a crew. And, and if people don't understand that working on film and television crews, even on independent features and everything else, if you're not doing that, you're not getting the knowledge of how to interact with others. And part of that is the experience of this lifestyle. You know, you and I tend to stay in dark rooms a lot, but I also spend a lot of time on set and a lot of time engaging with people. And that's part of the life that, that, I find interesting in all of this is, is that maybe it'll bring more of us together. You know, it's shared focus. I mean, look at what it's done for climate change and what's going on in Australia and, you know, the, the devastating wildfires in Australia. And if we didn't have the people turning out to social media to show what was going on there, we might not see as much of it as we do in the United States. And it's a big problem. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing with climate change. It's the same thing with plastics in the ocean. It's the same thing with all the things that are wrong with society around the world is that maybe all this content creation can help us better understand that we're all the same people and this is all one planet and we all have to work together to make it better. And, and sharing that content together could take us to a whole new level. Yeah. And, and I think it's just, I mean, even the breadth of what you were just talking about is huge, but I th it just goes beyond that. I mean, uh, I've, I've seen some things where like, it's an old grandpa guy who made his own cooking show on YouTube. And like, that's not a young creator by any stretch of the imagination, but he's, he's young at heart. Like he, he's willing to get into it and be interested. In it. And the fact that the technology allows him to do that is amazing. 
Um, same thing with, I mean, you talked about like a lot of the, you know, the wildfires and all those kind of things that brings awareness. Um, the converse of that is like the really good things. Like we get seen, we get to see really cool things that people are doing because technology is accessible. Um, I think one of the biggest, I guess, hurdles uh, about all of this is, I, I think it's overall absolutely going to be amazing. The hardest thing is going to be the amount of noise, I, I think. I mean, I, I don't remember what the statistic was, but it's like every second YouTube is creating like an hour of content. That, that's probably an exaggeration, but it's, there's no, no it's possible. not. It's, 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 it it's, 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 it's like 2.5 hours per minute is being uploaded. Okay. Yeah. And it's just insane. <laughs> There's no way you could possibly watch all that content. And I mean, it's not intended for everybody. A lot of that content is intended. Like, honestly, I upload videos to YouTube just to share with people because it's the easiest way for me to share a video with family sometimes. And so that's intended only really to be shared with one person. But still, like, I know myself, like, trying to navigate through my own YouTube feed. Uh, for me, it's almost, I don't want to say it's a chore, but it's definitely a task where I have to curate my own feed constantly, adding people and removing people. And it's amazing to see all this content, but it definitely does make it a larger part of your life when there's this much available. Well, and yeah, I mean, you know, look how many people who sit and just veg on Netflix or Amazon all the mm -hmm. time. And now we've got Apple and Hulu and Peacock and who knows else, HBO, whatever. And, you know, there's 6,000 different streaming sections and I can't keep up with any of them. I mean, wow. I'm still I, I'm still half a season back on Fleabag and it's been out for six months. So, <laughs> but and, and I still haven't caught Witcher yet. So it's, you know, it's like everything's there. And but you're right. There's so much content. We have to be curators of our own. And Plus to maintain our own sanity. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's not good for us to sit and just watch TV all the time and watch everybody else's content. Go create your own. Go be out, you know, go outside. Go enjoy what, what the planet has to offer, even when it's a cold, snowy day in Chicago. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the biggest things I always try to tell people when they're trying to look forward, whether it's AI or resolution, whether they're going to have a job in 10 years and all that jazz. And I think it really just does come down to enjoy what you're doing. Like if, if you can enjoy being a content creator today, just love that. Just love that you're able to enjoy what you are doing. And if you don't enjoy it, well, I mean, obviously, if there's any time something that you don't enjoy doing that you're doing, you got to evaluate. But I think the biggest thing is don't be afraid of technology. Don't be afraid of the trends of where things are going. You know, try to understand some of those trends. If, if you're a little fearful of it, try to understand the reasoning why things are going that way and see if you can, you know, get ahead of a lot of these things. So I think the hardest thing is playing catch up. When you're on the front of the wave or riding right in the middle, it's not so bad. It's when you're trying to play catch up, that's the worst. Yeah, it's always trying to get through the waves to get off the beach has always been a tough spot. Mm -hmm. And you're right. There's If you're not having fun, you're not ha you don't have the right job. You have to love what you do. I mean, if you're going to be a content creator and turn out the kind of things that make people want to watch, they have to have a reason to watch it. They have to have the, the, the impetus to do that. And, 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 you know, part of that is just having fun at this. We do this, you know, I do this with my friends because it's a good time. I, I speak in front of people because I like to share. I, I, I teach and share all that technology and, and write and do all those kind of things because I want other people to know what my knowledge is. And if I don't give it away, it, it dies with me. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that people don't think about is, is that, you know, the more we interconnect with each other and the more we share this content, the better we are at what we do. And, you know, we're all content creators, whether we're doing a podcast or, or, you know, doing a video podcast or, you know, standing up in front of people and talking at a convention. It's all the communication that brings us together, that shares the wealth of knowledge that we all have.
on that end, that's a terrific end to this podcast. That's a great segue there. Uh, so thank you very much, Gary, for coming on here. Um, I'm looking forward to the next time I get to see you in person. Uh, and it's always great talking with you. It's always great. I mean, in many ways, we nerd out over the very similar things. So it's always fun to just <laughs> talk about those things and get down those rabbit holes. I'm always here if you need me, Matt. It's always a great time to talk. And and yes, we are very much alike in, in our radical views of the future and how we should be. <laughs> All right. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in and uh, make sure you check up and listen in on our next podcast. All right. Thank you. <laughs>